You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. So Jesus invites you and he invites me into the fullness of life with two simple words. Follow me. The fullness of life. Follow me. At our core, disciples follow Jesus. But what does that look like and how can we do it together? Well, we've been learning that disciples are people who walk with Jesus who become like Jesus, and who join in what Jesus is doing. And we can take steps into these things together in one of the four pathways that our church is providing for you over this next year. First, you are invited to take steps as a follower of Jesus in our small groups, to join a group and and follow Jesus with, with other people who want the same. Another pathway is to join one of our formation experiences, which are these intentional, intensive, and interactive experiences that cover three days, a Thursday evening, a Friday evening, and a Saturday, and the first one is on November the 23rd. Mark it in your calendar. Third, we invite you to commit yourself to worshiping with us here on Sunday morning. It's a way we can follow Jesus. That's what we'll be speaking about each morning as we lift our hearts to him. Jesus, help us to follow you. And fourth, we've provided all of our discipleship material online. If you can't join a group or or, or you want to dive deeper on your own, there are resources online on our website that will help you follow Jesus in these three things. And so, this this morning, I want to take you deeper into our our sermon series where where we're looking at Jesus, of course. We're looking at Jesus and the people whom he encountered. If we're ever going to follow Jesus more completely, we need to see him more clearly. And we can do that by looking at him through the eyes of those whose lives he touched while he walked this earth. And so, I invite you to turn with me to to John chapter 2. It's perhaps a familiar piece of scripture to you if you've you've been here before, or maybe you're new, you've never heard this story before. John chapter 2, we read the story of Jesus at a wedding. And I'm going to read from verses 1 to 12, and so you can turn there in the Pew Bible, or, or you can find it on your device. And so, I invite you right now, to join Jesus in a small village called Cana, where he attends a wedding with his mother and his disciples. Hear the word of the Lord, John 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, 
the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray this morning that as we sit under your word, that we aren't just going through an intellectual exercise. Jesus, you hold the transforming power for life and life eternal. So, Jesus, we pray that you turn water into wine. We pray that you would do only what you can do as we open our hearts more and more to you. So, Holy Spirit, have your way in us. We are your people. We say yes to you. So lead us, I pray. Amen. So the context here, of course, is Jesus is invited to this wedding uh, along with his mom and, and his closest followers, his disciples. We, we heard a little bit about a few of them last week. And this wedding is in a little town called Cana, which is about 15 kilometers away from Jesus' hometown in Nazareth. It's not far. And now, we can't quite be sure because the text doesn't tell us, but it's likely that Jesus and his mom knew the family of, uh, of the people getting married that day, uh, partly because these towns were so close. They knew the family, and so, so this isn't kind of some scene out of the wedding crashers, okay? <laughs> and now, that can really happen, I have to say. Uh, when Gina and I got married, there was a couple uh, whom we didn't really know. Sometimes when you get married, you have to give the kind of customary invite because one of your parents knows the family, and you kind of need to do it in order to save. Does this happen to anyone else? Yes, no, yes? You know what I'm talking about? Well, so we, we gave the invitation to this, these people we didn't know, and they RSVP'd. We're like, oh, man. But they didn't RSVP just the two of them. They RSVP'd for like four other people. <laughs> and so we had these like four strangers at our wedding, and it was just really weird. That's just really weird. Just don't do that when you're invited to a wedding, all right? But the weird, really weird part was th these, these kind of wedding crashers, they, they, they lodged a formal complaint with the MCs of our wedding reception because they had to wait too long to get their food. This is a little weird. I mean, come on, don't feel too bad for me. It was a great wedding, but I mean, it was just a little weird, wasn't it? 
This scene is not a scene of, of Jesus crashing some kind of wedding uninvited. He, he, he and his family and, and the disciples, they lived close by. They, they likely knew the people. And weddings in Jesus' day, they were somewhat similar to what we have today, and they're somewhat different. They were the same in the sense that, that weddings were an occasion for joy. There, there were lots of food at weddings and, and lots of wine. There was laughter and speeches, and, and there was cheering and dancing. Weddings were a reason to celebrate the start of something new. They were the same, but they were different as well. They were different in the sense that, that weddings in Jesus' day often lasted a days, sometimes a week at length. I, I mean, imagine that. You, you, you thought just a weekend with your new in-laws was difficult. I mean, can you imagine a week? A week of celebrations. They, 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 they were different. But there were other differences, too. They didn't just last longer. For instance, it was expected in Jesus' day that the wedding hosts would provide everything that the guests of the wedding would need, whether it be food or drink or hospitality. The host had to provide everything. And here's the catch. If you didn't provide these things, there would be huge repercussions for you and your whole family. Because if you didn't uh, uh, show this kind of hospitality to your guests, it would bring shame upon you and your family. It would bring shame upon the newly married couple's life. And that would have implications. It would be a big deal because it would affect the married couple's uh, life in other areas. It would hurt the family business. It could harm their standing in the community. In fact, we have these historical papers that document a wedding host who is being sued because the expectations of the guests were not met. And so in verse 3, when, when, when Mary says the wine has run out at the wedding, it wasn't simply a mere inconvenience. Right, if, if I'm invited to, to your wedding and, and, and you run out of wine halfway through the reception and there's no more, it, it's, it's not really a big deal. I mean, it, it might affect the dancing a little later at night. It won't be as fun <laughs> to watch. <laughs> but really, it, it's not a big deal, is it? it? It would be a shame, but it wouldn't heap shame upon the newly married but at a first-century wedding, it most certainly would have. See, this wasn't a minor inconvenience. This was a crisis. It posed a threat to this young couple's future, financially, socially, relationally. And when the wine runs out, joy turns to sorrow. It's a hardship. And I wonder, has that ever happened to you? Maybe you didn't run out of wine at your wedding, but, but has the wine run out, so to speak, in other areas of your life? Have you faced a crisis where your joy has been turned to sorrow? I wonder if that's ever happened to you. Has the wine run out in your marriage, leaving you alone, 
broken? Or maybe the wine's run out through the loss of a job or a friend or the person who you hoped was the one. Or perhaps the wine ran out when, when you got the doctor's diagnosis or when someone close to you died. You see, I, I've lived long enough to know that, that we sometimes experience these crises, these crises in life where, where our joy turns to sorrow, right? Where, where our hope for the future, it, it turns into to something more of this hazy disappointment. And the question that all of us are faced with when crisis comes the question all of us are faced with when the wine runs out in our own life is what will you do? What will you do? Mary, the mother of Jesus, shows us the way because she brings the crisis to Jesus. Verse 5, uh, verse 3, sorry. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. She brings the crisis to Jesus. Now, we can assume that, that Mary did have some idea of what Jesus was capable, right? I, I think we can agree on that. I, I mean, this is the woman who heard angels announce the birth of her son. <laughs> this was a woman who, who heard prophets declare that, that this boy was the Messiah when she took him to the temple uh, as a baby. She, she, she must have had an idea of what Jesus was, was capable of doing. So she brings the crisis to Christ. But mark this. We shouldn't miss this. Mary has no idea what Jesus is going to do. She doesn't know what Jesus will do, but she trusts him with the crisis nonetheless. And mark this. She doesn't tell Jesus what to do in the crisis either. We like to do that, don't we? She simply trusts that Jesus can do something and trusts that he will. When the wine of joy runs out in your life, do you turn to Jesus in your crisis? Or do you turn to something else to get you through? What do you turn to? Do you medicate your disappointments in life? Or do you meditate your way to some form of inner peace? Or like Mary, do you trust Jesus with your crisis? Church, this is what following Christ looks like. Even when you don't understand what is happening, even when you don't know what Jesus will do, we trust him, full stop. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Mary says to Jesus, she, she comes to him and she says, they have no more wine. And Jesus then responds. Look at verse 4. He says, he says woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And now there's two things that, that we need to note about Jesus calling 
um, marry woman, <laughs> uh, not uh, this term woman. Because at first, it feels derogatory to us, doesn't it? it I don't go home to, to my wife and say, woman, ever. <laughs> it doesn't matter what comes next. You just don't do that. <laughs> it sounds derogatory. And it sounds like that to us, but, but the Greek word here, it doesn't work that way. It, it, Jesus actually uses the same word woman when he's hanging on the cross, and he looks at his mother, Mary. And as he draws some of his, his final breaths, he looks at her and he says, woman, here now is your son, pointing to the apostle John who was next to her, in effect saying, woman, here is the son that will replace me in your life to take care of you in your old age. It's not a derogatory term, and we need to understand that. But the second thing to notice here is that, that Jesus calls Mary woman, not mother, woman. And the question is why? Well, it's because Jesus in this moment is most concerned with his heavenly Father's will and not his earthly mother's request. He's most concerned with his heavenly father's will, but not his earthly mother's request. And we know this because of what Jesus says next. He says to her, my hour has not yet come. You see, over and over again in, in John's gospel, Jesus speaks about his hour. His hour, his hour. Five times he speaks about his hour. Why? Because Jesus was waiting for a particular hour in his life, a particular moment that would sum up the reason why he had come. And what hour was Jesus waiting for? Well, it was the hour of the cross, of course, the moment of the cross, the weekend of Easter. Look at John 12. I didn't read this, but if you Fast forward to John 12, verse 3 and what follows. This is what Jesus says. Finally, the hour has come. The hour, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And it goes on, and Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The hour. The hour that Jesus is waiting for is the moment of the cross. And it's why he came to give up his life in taking our sin and our shame upon himself so that its curse would be broken and we would be reconciled to the God of life. It's Jesus' hour. It is the reason he came. You see, some people understand Jesus to be a good moral teacher, which he is. And some see him as, as life's great guide, the one who shows us how to live, which he does. Some see him as a great prophet among other prophets, which he is. And some see Jesus as a miracle worker, which he was. 
and is. But hear this clearly, church. None of these are the reason why he came. He did not come to be a teacher or a guide or a prophet or a miracle worker. Jesus came for a certain hour, a precise moment in human history. He came to willingly and painfully take the sin of the world upon his shoulders in order to set right what we have set wrong. He came to take away the sin of the world. Jesus' hour on the cross was Jesus' passion. His eyes were were fixed on, on demonstrating the deep love and power of God through the cross. And so he says to Mary, Woman, my hour has not yet come. Yet, Jesus takes action anyways, doesn't he? Jesus is always willing to take action when the wine runs out of a person's life. Verses 5 and 6, look at the text. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood these six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons each. And now, we need to pay attention to to these stone jars. The text tells us uh, that that they're used for this ceremonial washing. And they were typically placed at at the entrance of, of kind of a building. So they would have been placed at the entrance of the wedding reception so that the guests, when they walked in, that they could wash their hands They could wash their face, and they could also wash their dishes. Not so much because they were dirty or dusty, but because they were impure. You see, weddings were sacred ceremonies. They were a picture of God's marriage to his people, Israel. They were a reminder that the holy God has chosen people to be holy like him. But the problem is... (laughs) People aren't holy. Are they? We know that. We see it in our own lives. People aren't holy. We fall short of God's perfection. We we fail. We sin. We're impure. And so there was this whole religious system of Judaism that that was built around rituals that, that make you clean so that you could stand before God and be made acceptable to him. If you went to the temple... You had to wash. If you exited the marketplace, you had to wash. When you would come home at the end of the day, you had to wash. Not because so much because you were dirty, but because you were impure. If you were to be in contact with bodily fluids or, or animals or insects or, or anything unclean, you had to ceremonial wash. Because only the pure could stand before God. Only the pure were accepted by him, which presents quite a problem. Jesus' fellow Jews were caught in this endless cycle of washing and purifying, only to become unclean again. They relied on the water to make them right with God, again and again and again. 
And the problem was that the ritual of washing really had no power to make a person pure. No matter how many times you wash your hands, the act is powerless to clean the soul. This is the problem with every single religious ritual and system in our world. It's the problem of religion. It can't clean our soul. You see, religious systems and rituals, they have no power to make us right with God. And no matter how many rituals we perform or, 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 or how many good things that we do, these things can't purify us from the stain of sin that we live with. A murderer cannot clean their soul by saying three Hail Marys or by helping three little old ladies cross the street. And bless you, if you're a little old lady in this room that needs to cross the street, we will help you. <laughs> but doing that won't clean our soul. Of course it won't. And so it is, not simply with murderers, but with liars and cheaters and swindlers and gossips and all the like. We can't clean our soul by doing deeds and washing our hands. The real problem at this wedding, at the very front door, was that the water doesn't work. The water doesn't work. Rituals don't make us right with God, despite that being our greatest human need. At the wedding, the ceremonial jars sat at the entrance, but the water didn't work. Verse 7, look at the text and all that follows. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. Church, let me ask, what does Jesus do when the water runs out? Sorry, what does Jesus do when the wine runs out and the water doesn't work? What does he do in a person's life when the wine runs out and the water doesn't work? Well, church, he changes the water into wine. It's what he does. We call it a miracle, but, but John, in his gospel, he calls it a sign. Verse 11, look, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. There are actually seven signs in John's gospel, and this is the very first one. And it's a sign, a, a sign points to something beyond itself, right? That's what signs do. I remember as an eight-year-old kid, I was in the car, my parents were driving, and we were going to Canada's Wonderland. I don't know if anyone's been there. It is the best amusement park in the world. It beats Disneyland, it, me it beats Epcot Center, okay, everything beats Epcot Center. Uh, it, it, it beats uh, any amusement park you've been to. There are roller coasters. Uh, it, it, it's, it's the place of an eight-year-old boy's dreams. 
And we're in the car driving uh, to Canada's Wonderland. It's in Ontario. Uh, and, and it was a one and a half hour drive from where we were living at the time, which is an eternity for an eight-year-old in a car. And I remember looking intently out the window uh, for signs that we were at the park. And as we got closer, every now and then there'd be a sign. And it would say, Canada's Wonderland, that way. Now, the sign was not the destination. That couldn't bring me to joy. The sign simply pointed to something greater that was ahead, something that I desperately longed for. And when Jesus turns water into wine, it's a sign of something greater that is yet to come. And so let me ask again, what does Jesus do when the wine runs out and the water does not work? What does Jesus do when the wine of joy runs out of your life? And what does Jesus do when the water of religion cannot save your soul? Well, he changes water into wine. He transforms the lot. He turns it on its head and, and reorders the way things work. He restores joy to the banquet of a life that's been hit with a crisis. And he, he does what religion simply cannot, it could never do. Jesus changes the water of religion into the wine of a joy at a wedding banquet. This is what the story is about. What does the sign of new wine point toward? It points toward an hour when Jesus will make all things new. When, when he will take the brokenness of every life crisis upon his shoulders and make way for our healing. It points toward a time when he will take the sin of every person upon himself and purchase our forgiveness. Water into wine points toward the joy that will fill the earth when God finally makes right all that is wrong in us and in our world. Did you notice that John, when he introduces this story, he says this, on the third day. Does that sound familiar? On the third day. It was on the third day following Jesus' hour that he rose from the dead. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. On the third day, joy returned to the disciples' lives. All that they thought was lost had been restored on the third day. That's what changing water into wine points toward. It's on the third day. The joy returns to those who follow Jesus. All that we thought was lost is restored on the third day. The water is turned into wine. In the middle of a wedding... Jesus is saying, I have a solution to every instance in your life where the wine of joy has run out. And I have a solution to every instance where the water of religion did not work. And it will come through my hour, my hour on the cross. This is truly breathtaking. And friends, this morning, Jesus is inviting every single one of us here, every single one of us, to a place at his banquet table. At the wedding in Cana, the master of the banquet 
having tasted the wine, says you've saved the best till now. And church, when Jesus is in your life, the best is yet to come. It always is. The best is yet to come. Church, Jesus can fill your life, even today, with the joy of new wine. He can bring new life to areas of yours that desperately need it. Whether it's your marriage or your self-esteem, your addictions, or how about your anger? Maybe it's your spiritual malaise, your, your boredom, or your disappointments. Jesus can bring new life into these areas of yours. The joy of his wine, it doesn't run out. That's why we're told there's gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of this wine. The point is, it doesn't run out. The joy of his wine doesn't run out. It will not spoil. It will not fade. And he wants to bring joy into your life today. And he also wants to purify you. Not over and over and over again, but once for all. One sacrifice for all our sin. He wants to purify you once for all from all the wrong you've participated in, all the wrong you've done. Jesus wants to do what no religious ritual or water ever could. He wants to forgive you. To forgive you and make you right with God. He can change water into wine in your life today. And so church, the question is simple. Will you trust Jesus with your life? Will you follow him? Will you take your seat at his banquet table and be part of all that he wants to do in our world? If it's a yes, then I invite you to raise your heart with me and stand as you're able and pray. Let's pray. Jesus, we are a, a room full of broken people because not one of us has it all put together. Not one of us has it all figured out. Jesus, there are times when we, we think we might have. <laughs> there are these seasons where the sun is shining down on us. But Jesus, even in those, Lord, we know we need you. And I want to pray specifically for people in this room who are experiencing a life crisis. Where the wine of joy is run dry. Jesus, none of my words could ever affect the power of God in a person's life, but your spirit can. And so, Jesus, I pray for those who are saying yes to you this morning, that you would turn water into wine, that you would bring the joy of life back to them, and you'd begin to heal, to cover over these areas of life, whether it be marriage or, 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 or self-confidence or whatever, that Jesus you would do your miracle work. 
And Jesus, for those in this room who are struggling with the sense of their value before you, maybe there's, there is a, a sin of their past that, that is holding them in darkness, Jesus. I pray that you would break the chains. That is, we say yes to you, that you would bring this wave of forgiveness that brings joy. And that in our hearts, Jesus, we sit around the table with you and we raise a glass to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who calls us into the fullness of life with two words, follow me. Jesus, we will. We will. We will. Amen.